0: Welcome to The Leadership Mind. I'm your host, Massimo Bacchus. This show is about the stories, assumptions, and perspectives that either create or block our ability to lead. In this podcast, we'll speak with those that are in the arena, the leaders themselves. By trade and training, I'm a leadership coach and facilitator with a relentless curiosity for helping people, teams, and organizations thrive in pursuit of making their vision and purpose a reality. The goal is to bring you new insights, perspectives, and practices to help you lead authentically, navigate your career intentionally, and grow high-performing teams successfully. My hope is that in these episodes, you will witness humility, where we celebrate our failures as much as our successes. Curiosity, where we share wisdom and insights openly. And community, where we grow together. Let's explore The Leadership Mind. Welcome everyone to another episode of The Leadership Mind. I'm your host, Massimo Bacchus. And today I'm joined by Therese Huston, And Teresa is a cognitive scientist at Seattle University, actually my alma mater, and she just recently wrote a book called Let's Talk, Making Effective Feedback, Your Superpower, which has been published by Penguin Random House. So congratulations on that, Teresa. It's very exciting and and we're going to dig into it. The book is really about feedback, but you approach it from scientific rigor to figure out what works and what doesn't and you've used some really eye-opening stories to to make it pop for the readers and make it applicable. And thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you. It's a real treat to be here, Massimo. Thanks for having me on.
0: So you've written a number of books. You've been in the cognitive science space for a long time. What was it about feedback in this time that this is where you wanted to focus and this was the book that you were ready to write?
1: I don't know about you, but certainly for myself and many of the people I've interviewed, feedback moments are some of the most emotionally charged moments at work, whether you're giving it and you're agonizing over how you're going to say the thing and how they're going to take it, or you're on the receiving end and maybe you're blindsided by the way that your boss gives you the feedback or the way your manager talks about an issue that you thought you were sailing and your manager is telling you you're sinking. Those moments tend to be very memorable and I've been writing in the space of feedback for a couple of years now and often have people ask me, so Therese, I've got to give feedback. I just got this feedback about someone who works for me and I need to pass it on. And how do I do it? And I know that this is a place where managers struggle. So I was, you know, and I'm happy to tell some stories about awful feedback experiences, but I could see this as a place where people need some guidance and they want to feel more prepared going into those conversations. I feel deeply in that space. That was my motivation for writing the book.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you had to bottom line this, what is the single biggest tip that you have for leaders and managers around feedback?
1: I'll focus on something that was surprising from my research, because I think this, if it was surprising for me, it's going to be surprising for other people. So I surveyed 417 people about their very worst feedback experiences. You know, that memory that is so vivid to you because you're just like, I can't believe that person said that, or I can't believe the way they said it. Right. So I interviewed them or surveyed them about their worst feedback experiences, the thing that really demotivated them. And I asked the question, what would have made that conversation better? because I was really focused on conversations, you know, and I gave them, you know, like 15 different options, pick the thing that would have made it better. What I thought people would say was that they needed to trust that person more. That's what I thought would be the most common thing that people would have picked because we see so many leadership articles about you need to build trust with your team. And, you know, if you want feedback to land well, you've got to build that trust first. Right. So I thought that was going to be the most common response. That was actually the 10th most popular response it didn't even come in the top five. Right. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's really surprising. And I I think it was something like only 19% of people said that would have made it better. So it was a small number. So what was really common, the top five answers, and people could pick more than one answer. That's why, you, you know, you didn't just have to pick one, you could pick multiple things that would have made it better. The, the most common responses that people indicated were all around, I wish that person had given me a chance to tell my side of the story, or I wish they had worked with me to generate new strategies. You know, it was all about, let's make this a conversation. Don't just make this, you're broadcasting what I did badly. The other thing, the, the number one response was, I wish they had acknowledged my hard work. And so if I had one takeaway from managers, it's when you've got hard feedback to give, make sure you're taking a, a good look at what work did that person put into it? You know, you don't have to say your performance was good because it wasn't, but where did they go the extra mile? Did they work hard? Did they put in extra hours, even though the extra hours didn't pay off? Did they perhaps show some leadership? Did they pay attention to a neglected issue that no one else was looking at? Whatever it might be, but to try to figure out where did they put in some extra effort? Because that person is going to be so much more receptive to whatever hard feedback you have to give. If you've at least acknowledged their side of like, I I can see that you worked on this. I can see you tried hard. So I think that's both surprising that trust wasn't as important as I expected it to be. I think so many of us, when we have hard feedback to give, we just get caught up in the, how am I going to deliver the hard news? And we're not seeing the employee's perspective as clearly as we could.
0: Yeah. So there's a missed opportunity in being able to have empathy, understanding, and get curious about what their experience is. Yes. What advice do you have for managers that, by all accounts, what information they have is that the person didn't try that hard and they <laughs> didn't perform well, so it becomes very difficult to find that positive thing to recognize. And to take it one step further, if you were to recognize something that it doesn't feel authentic because you, as the manager, don't believe it yourself, how do you help people there?
1: Uh-huh. It is really tricky. If you can find something positive to say, something specific and positive, that feedback is going to land a lot better. There's great research by Leslie John at Harvard Business School. So it's worth it to find some authentic piece of praise. And and certainly I've been in this situation myself and I've seen other managers where they're like, I'm not impressed with their effort, right? It doesn't seem like they're trying very hard to potentially give feedback around, well, I can see you tried harder on this project than the last project, even if it's still lower than your expectations, to be able to say, "I I can see you put in a more effort this time, that might be the way to do it because progress is important for people to see. But if you're really disheartened by the work that they put in, right, maybe that's the feedback that you're going to give that they didn't work hard enough to find something else that you might want to give feedback on. So it might be something like people love to work with you because you come in with such positive energy. You're someone that lightens the mood in a hard meeting. And I really appreciate that. But when you're working solo. I need to see you dial it in a bit more. I'm not seeing the level of effort that I need to be seeing. Do you see what I'm saying? You could, you could focus on some other thing that they're bringing to the workplace. That's positive. That doesn't have to do with their effort, but I hear, I hear you on needing the authenticity piece.
0: Yeah. And it certainly takes some consideration, especially when there's a disappointment in performance to consider outside of this project, you know, what other areas are there, but on the Mm -hmm. flip side of being able to start by this recognition and, and trying to see the bigger story, What has your research found around those people that hear it and then immediately erase it from their memory once the (laughs) conversation goes to the either it's but or nevertheless, or I also have this piece of feedback to offer you?
1: Yeah. Well, we do all have what's called a negativity bias, which is that we pay more attention to the critical things that we hear than the positive things that we hear. And there's... Great research showing that when we're highly stressed, the negativity bias becomes even more exaggerated. And I think COVID has been a long period of higher stress for most of us in the workplace because of all the Zoom calls or just now, you know, you're juggling family, all of a sudden you've got your support system at home for having your kids go to school or having someone watch your kids. So a lot of that has changed for people. So people are experiencing so much more stress around work than they used to. So I think the negativity bias has increased even more where we're hearing the negative or we're paying more attention to the negative, and not enough to the positive. So I think you're so right that that's the case for some people. And to some extent, there's nothing we can do about that, right? That's our bias. And I think it's probably built into us for various reasons to pay attention to the negative, right? It's much more important to notice if we think evolutionary psychology, it's more important to think about the tiger that might be lurking (laughs) um, in the grass than to think about, you know, the beautiful bird that's on the branch, right? You know, we're going to pay more attention to the negative. I like compare and contrast. So if you're letting someone know something negative to make sure that you let them know, don't go to the extreme here, right? So let's say that um, you want Lisa to redo some graphs in a report that she did. So what you might say to Lisa is, Lisa, you know, I love all the data. You did so much research on this. You're my go-to person when I need someone to dig into the data, but I still need you to redo these two graphs. And what I'm not saying, so this is the compare and contrast. What I'm not saying is that you're not good with graphics. I'm not saying that I need someone else to write the report. You're really good with this. However, in this case, I'm going to be giving these graphs to my boss. And so I need more detail there than usual, right? You're helping Lisa frame the like, This isn't all terrible. Your work isn't awful, right? So giving her that compare and contrast. It's not blank, but it is blank. I think that that's helpful in preventing people from spiraling into this negativity.
0: Yeah, so you're you're giving context and you're providing the why behind the feedback.
1: Yes, right. Exactly. You're providing the why behind the feedback. Or you could say, so, Lisa, I want you to redo these graphs. It's not because I think that you're bad at details. I think you're really good at details. However, I want you to be someone that I can go to for any graphic that I want to use because I think that you've got so much potential there. So I want to see you take this to the next level. Well, that feels great to Lisa, at least if she wants to do graphics for you, that feels great. (laughs) Maybe she doesn't want to do your graphs in the future, but if you're letting her know I see potential and I want to stoke that potential, that would be really exciting for her.
0: It sounds like you're positioning this as the mindset, the perspective of the manager or leader that's giving the feedback is developmental in nature. It, while the feedback might be correct, that it's positive, that it's encouraging, which is often what I think is missing and what creates that tension in the managers that are giving the feedback saying, I'm giving bad news I'm the, I'm, you know, I'm going to be the messenger of something that could hurt another person. So what advice do you have for going into those with the mindset of the contrast, but also framing it as something that can be motivating. Hey, this could be better. This is an opportunity for you to grow.
1: Exactly, and I do. Thanks for for underlining that. I do take a very developmental perspective. I think all too often I was just working with an organization doing some workshops for them, and some of their managers pushed back. They were reluctant to give positive feedback because I think you know they didn't put it this way, but as I listened to their concerns, they were seeing it as very binary, as though well, there are people I want to hear good things, and then there are people who are underperforming, and I don't want them to hear good things because I don't want them to be confused, right? As though the receiver of the feedback was also being very black and white about it. And I think people are more complex than we give them credit for. I think the important judgment that managers have to make, even backing up a little further is, is this person coachable or not, right? Mm-hmm. In your work as a leadership coach, this is something that you try to get other leaders to think about. Is this person coachable or not? And if your decision is, no, this person isn't coachable because they're like, sorry, Massimo, I am who I am, right? <laughs> Like, okay, then that's a very different set of conversations you need to be having with this person because they're refusing to change. But if your judgment is this person is coachable, all right, then we need to be thinking about, I want to see them develop and grow. Maybe they can't be all things. None of us can, but where are the areas for growth? Where do they want to grow? Where am I hoping they can grow? And so I do take a very coaching perspective. As a leadership coach, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, if you'd be willing to share how you see the developmental side of it.
0: Well, I think that determining whether somebody is coachable is critical hmm. and there's art and science to that because on the surface, someone could seem like they're not, but maybe they haven't had that safe space to let their guard down. Uh, All maybe right. they haven't had the self-awareness that window opened up, uh, opened up enough for them to go, Oh, I'm playing on an old operating system. Hmm. You know, the manager that was the great salesperson and then became the sales manager and is underperforming. And everyone says, they just can't change. They were lauded and praised for everything they did prior in their career as this great salesperson. And now they've shifted, has the organization equipped them to be successful in this new role?
1: So we can't just blame the
0: person and say, we can't change them or or, they're not willing to change. They might not know. And another part of it might be, maybe they took this role because most organizations have a hierarchical structure that says, if you want to grow, you need to go up. And so they went up. But yes. their real zone of genius is actually back in being in sales. And mm-hmm. so, you know, when we see organizations today looking at talent marketplaces and changing role descriptions and pathing for people, it opens up possibilities because not everybody should be a manager. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think being a people manager is probably one of the hardest jobs in any organization if not the hardest. And we have this philosophy that we all become accustomed to. When we first start our careers, it's like, that's the holy grail. We'll get there and then we'll take on more people and more people and we all want it. And yet we're not all the same. And that's why we go through our careers, having managers that are amazing because that's what they should be doing. And those managers that are like, you're exceptional at being a subject matter expert or it's something else, but this is not your sweet spot. So I think that there's a conversation and back to your point around coaching, it's so much about curiosity. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. feedback and coaching go hand in hand so much. The feedback that you heard that the number one item is that people wanted their side of the story to be heard. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really all about having an open-ended coaching conversation to seek to understand what was their experience. Did they have enough direction? Did they understand what they were supposed to be doing, you know, where they set up for success?
1: Exactly. And asking interesting questions like, what don't I know about your work life? Right. Asking questions like that, where the other person gets to say, oh, my gosh, you don't understand, but I do not get along with Anne. I mean, if I can be candid, Anne and I are always in conflict and we have to work together on this project, but whatever it might be to show, you know, I love that you've emphasized curiosity in that because it's very, you know, as a manager, you have a unique perspective. As a leader, you have one perspective that's very useful to you and and bigger than perhaps the person who works for you. But the person who works for you has a perspective that you don't fully understand. No matter how insightful and empathetic you are, you still don't fully understand it. So trying to find out what don't I know, help me understand. Or I love the question, what were you hoping for, right? When someone Mm. screws it (laughs) up, instead of why did you do that, which puts the other person on the back foot to ask what were you hoping for? Because it gives a person the benefit of the doubt right? They get a chance to say, Massimo, here's what I was hoping for. And then you can be like, oh, okay, here's how we can get you there. <laughs> right. Here's a better way. That's a great outcome. That, we do want that outcome. Um, and, and here's why the approach that you took ended up not getting you there. So let's rethink this because we can definitely have that outcome for you or for the team.
0: Yeah. Um, Does the so, question of what were you hoping for help the manager and the employee align on expectations? Is that the kind of the outcome of that question?
1: partly, partly it's expectations. So it gives you a chance to find out, let's say you ask, what were you hoping for? And the other person says, well, you know, I was hoping that we would get, you know, 20 people to show up for that event. Right. And you can say, wow, we were hoping for a hundred people for that event. Right. So now, so part of it is expectations where where we aligned on our expectations. But another part is that person may say something like, you know, I was really hoping that we would get 20 people for that event. And you're like, that's not your job, right? Your your job isn't about advertising and marketing and making sure that we get people to show up. I've got Jeremy on that task. What I need you to be doing is I really need you to be focused on the content so that for the people who do show up, right? And so, you know, and that person may be confused about what part of the pie, and I especially see this for younger employees. They're not sure what they're good at. You know, their role to them seems really ambiguously defined, whether it is or isn't. It seems like I want to do it all and I could do it all. And so, or at least I, I hope I could do it all. And so I think that it may feel a bit handholding for some managers to have to have that conversation of the clarity of like, no, this is your part. This is your special part of the pie. Just focus on that part. Don't worry about the ice cream. <laughs> right? um, uh, but I do. So part of its expectations and also um, part of it is helping that person understand where their role fits into the larger team
0: expectations, where they fit into the larger part of the team, and then making sure that there's a shared understanding of what that is.
1: Yes, right.
0: What advice do you have for managers to make sure that when you have an expectation setting conversation, to ensure that there's alignment? Because I work with so many leaders that leave a conversation thinking, you know, you and Teresa, the two of us had a conversation. Uh I left thinking we're on the same page. Uh We go off and do our work, we come back, and it was apples and oranges.
1: Yeah, and I think that's especially happening with all the remote meetings, right? Part of it is that people end meetings more abruptly. You know, they'd be like, oh, whoa, crap, I've got a dog emergency, right, (laughs) or something, right, you know, or they've got to, like, pivot, or they've got a three-year-old crawling into their lap, and they're like, oh, I need to go. So one of the things that I'm really encouraging leaders to do more often and managers to do, particularly in one-on-ones, is to do a check-in at the end which can feel redundant, but you can kind of make it funny. So the check-in at the end is just, might be something like, all right, we covered a lot of ground today. What are the top three takeaways for you, right? Or the thing might be something like, okay, and this is where I like to be funny. Is like, I wanna be, belts and suspenders thorough. Let's just be a little redundant here. Tell me what you're hearing, right? When you leave this meeting, what are going to be your goals for the next week? And that gives you a chance if that person is focused, they come away with, well, here are my three tasks. And you're like, okay, I agree with one of those, but actually the other two, these other two things are more important. So saving time at the end of the meeting for that kind of clarification asking that question. And like I said, it can feel redundant, but once you do it once or twice, then people know that we're going to do this at the end of the meeting. They might even do it without your asking the question. right? They're like, okay, so Therese, my top three takeaways are this, are we on the same page? So that's one of the things I recommend. It might feel redundant, but it saves you and the other person so much frustration because they might go off and do really hard work. And that's not the hard work you want them to be doing.
0: Yes. I love the belts and suspenders. And I mean, the discipline that it will take to ensure that there's the five minutes in at the end of the meeting, as you said, things end abruptly. So to be be mindful of the
1: time. Yeah. I was working with a leader at a tech company. And what I suggested to her was because she was telling me, she's like, Therese, you don't understand. Everybody's, you know, they're in meetings all day. We can't extend the meeting even by two minutes because they're all back to back. And so one of the things I suggested to her was to say, okay, when you get back at your desk, Send me your top three takeaways, right? So that if you can't have the conversation in the meeting, at least they're doing it when they get, you know, they're back to their desk, right? Because they're at their desk all day. But when they get that time before the end of the day, they let you know, and then you can at least have the conversation over email. It'd be better to have it face to face. But anyway, just trying to make that one of your more regular practices. I think is really wise during remote work conditions.
0: Yeah. So what you're saying is whether it's in person or over email, closing the loop, belts and suspenders is a critical piece to ensuring alignment and that things are moving smoothly.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: I'd like to pivot back to this list, the, the research that you've collected. So of the top five, the first was that the employee, the person receiving the feedback would like to be able to have their side of the story heard. They want to be seen, heard, and appreciated. What were some of the other top pieces?
1: So it was actually, so number one was actually that I, I want my hard work acknowledged. That was actually number one. And then number two through five were different variations on, I wanted to tell my side of the story. So I can't remember the exact order in which they came, but one was, I wanted a chance to tell my side of the story. Another was, I want to brainstorm strategies for the future together, right? As opposed to being told. At least that's how I interpret it as, to, as opposed to being told. There was another one that was on, I wish my manager had asked me more questions, right? So so just this whole idea of show curiosity, you know, let me tell my side of the story and let's figure out the next steps that are realistic together, as opposed to what I think so often we as managers feel like we're problem solvers and we are. So we want to, okay, I see a solution. If you just did this, I can save you time. We won't have to have this conversation again if you just did it this way, but It's so much more powerful if the employee discovers that, if they come up with it on their own, if they generate it, they are going to think it's more insightful. They're going to think it's more doable. They're going to be more incentivized to try it and try it not just once, but try to make it work. Like if their first attempt doesn't work, they'll keep pushing at it, right? If they come up with it. Whereas if you tell them to do it and they don't like the idea, their first attempt, they're like, well, I did it, Massimo. Didn't work. (laughs) Right so I gave up. Whereas if they come up with it, they're like, okay, that didn't work. Maybe this ver. Oh, here, why don't I try it this way? So this idea of, of showing curiosity is core. I wish I could remember what the fifth one was, but like I said, they all fell under that bucket of let's have a conversation. Don't dictate yeah. to me. Yeah.
0: Let me ask you about this. I find this potentially more in cases I'm coaching somebody for a VP and they have a team of directors hmm. and The VP says, I want my directors to come to me with solutions. And then I want us to partner on, is that the right solution? Hmm. And the director says, I want more direction from my VP of where we're supposed to go. And so there's this tension between who is responsible for leading the solution. The manager wants to see more of that from their direct reports. And the direct reports are saying, I would like more direction. Uh And it seems like there's a bit of a, a polarity or a paradox that exists there. And what I hear you saying is that the employees actually want to be able to be empowered to come with the solution. I'm hearing from clients of mine that they also want that too, but they're not getting it. They're getting the opposite.
1: So what you're saying is they're talking about the higher ups. They're having people come to them and say, I can't give you solutions yet because I don't know the direction well enough. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah. Or I would like for you to just tell me how we should approach this.
1: Uh, Ah, make it keep, make it simple.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're a director I'd like for you to figure out how this should be done and let's collaborate on it. And I will provide feedback and coaching help you, but I want you to come with something for me to react to is the perspective Mm -hmm. of the VP, as opposed to coming to me and saying, I have a problem. How would you like me to solve
1: it? If the problem is, let's say your VP comes to you and says, okay, so we need some new DEI strategies and the employees like Okay, what part of that space do you want us to tackle? And the VP is like, no, you know, come to me with solutions. And the employee's like, uh, that's a huge space. I don't know even where to begin, right? I think that's probably, and I'm just, that's just coming up with one example. I think that might be different than when an employee is receiving feedback about their work. So you're letting someone know you tend to be too verbose, right? I need you to be more succinct and the employee wants to be able to think out loud with you about like, well, here are the reasons that I provide so many details, right? Here's why I think that's important and why I go on for two pages when you ask for a paragraph, right? You know, they want a chance to be able to say, okay, what I need in order to be more succinct is I need this in order to do that, right? I need to know who the audience is. So I think that when it's feedback about someone's own performance, they want to have more hands on the steering wheel around how we solve that problem. Whereas I think when a leader or a manager is coming to someone and saying, all right, I need you to generate some solutions for this big problem that's driven by the organization's needs i can see why employees would be like i'm not going to be able to achieve that unless you give me a little bit more direction give me something concrete here otherwise we're going to both be spinning our wheels whereas when it's personal when it's about like how i showed up to work yesterday you know or i made an inappropriate remark in a meeting you're telling me that i insulted people when i didn't mean that they want to be able to own well like here's what i meant (laughs) you're not being fair like hear my side of the story right yeah so I think that might be a difference there in terms of where leaders are getting pushed back versus where I think their employees would be very open to owning what the possible solutions are.
0: The distinction being when it's about someone's own development, they want to be empowered and have the hand in the steering wheel and be a creator. And when it's about some larger initiative, they would actually like more directions so they know what are the barriers, what are the boundaries with which they're
1: playing in. Exactly, and I think that's a really good way of putting it because when it's about your own development, you know the boundaries, right? So that person may be saying to you, you know, Massimo, um, you know, we need someone to be on call in the evenings, and you're like, yeah, that's that's not happening. I'm not your person for that, right? I've got a youngster at home. We're not adding evenings to my work. So they want to be in control of like here are the constraints that I know are realities for me. Whereas if it's some problem that the organization is trying to solve, then they know what the constraints are as opposed to what my development looks like. So yeah, I think so.
0: Got it. And a moment ago, you had mentioned that acknowledgement, the top. Yeah. So what does that look like? How do people want to be acknowledged? What sorts of things do they want to be acknowledged for? And how can managers get better at doing that in a way that's authentic and on purpose?
1: Yeah, great question. I think the research that I find helpful on this is by Teresa Amabile and Stephen Kramer. They had people keep work diaries where they kept detailed information about when they felt satisfied at work, what was a workday that they really enjoyed, what was a workday that they just wanted to be over. And what they found was that the workdays that people enjoyed most weren't the workdays where they got something big done. Right. So we often think that the satisfying work days are the day that we did the big presentation or the day that we like turned in the important deliverable, you know, we, we finished those designs and we delivered them to the customer. But what they actually found were the days that people enjoyed most at work were just the days where they really felt they made progress, right? If you spent all day on a document and at the end of the day, you find out you've got to start that document from scratch tomorrow. Like that is a terrible work day, right? It's like, why did I show up? Yes. Fuck. <laughs> Or your computer crashes and you lose the things you worked on, right? We all either have been there or have heard about people being there, right? Those are the worst days. Whereas days where you feel like I made progress. Okay, it's not done, but I really made substantial progress on those. Those are really satisfying days. So I think that's a place that's overlooked by managers that you can give feedback on progress, right? You can say to someone, all right, Joshua, I still need you to work on your negotiation skills, but the way you negotiated in today's meeting, like here are all the things I saw you you doing differently. Differently. Great job with perspective taking great job coming in with a baton out, with an alternative acceptable option. You can give people encouragement and notice I'm see you making progress because that's what people feel really satisfied is when they're making progress. So if you see me making progress, I know I'm really making progress.
0: And that can happen after meetings, in between meetings, that's more spot feedback as opposed to only in one-on-ones, right?
1: Exactly, right. You know, if you're on a Zoom call, you can do a private chat with a person saying, you know, something like, way to go, having that data in your back pocket, right? And then, you know, you go back, you don't say it to the whole group, but you say it to that individual. So that can be a way of like acknowledging in the moment, good job with the progress. I see you developing your potential.
0: Yeah. And being specific about it,
1: right? And being specific is very important. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. People like to denigrate the feedback sandwich, right? The idea that you start with something positive and move to something negative and then you end on positive. And it's interesting because Leslie John, she's a researcher at Harvard Business School. She was wondering, does the feedback sandwich actually work? And she hasn't published this research yet, but I've talked with Leslie and she finds that what you do last doesn't matter, whether you end on a positive or a negative doesn't matter. But what really matters is that you need to start with something positive, and it needs to be specific. So it can't just be, I really like your office setup. right? (laughs) Like, that's nice. You know, it looks it's clear you put some work into that, right? And you have a nice office setup. But that's so generic, right? And that doesn't show me that I'm paying attention to your work, to the things that you're putting a lot of thought into right now. Whereas when I get really specific and say, you know, you ask such thoughtful questions in the interviews, I can tell how present you are, you don't feel distracted at all. And I know that that takes a lot of works. So, and I really value that about the conversation that we're having. Like you now feel seen. Um, I, at least I hope you feel seen, you're yes. going to feel more seen than my simply saying you have a nice office set up. And so The feedback sandwich isn't all bad. The part that we get wrong is that we tend to have a lot of detail on the negative thing that we want to say and not much detail on the positive. And we just brush right through it. We may not mean to, but if we can make it as detailed as the concern that we're going to raise, the other person will feel a lot more seen.
0: So what I hear you saying is that whether we're ending on a positive or negative or or corrective feedback is less relevant than how much care concern and how much the person is actually being seen in that space at the closing of the meeting.
1: Yes, exactly. Well, the kind of research she was doing is she was having people like in a Pictionary game where you have to draw a bear or she varied whether she gave positive feedback first or critical feedback on their drawings of the bear. And this wasn't something that people came in caring about, right? These weren't art students who cared about drawing bears. So it's a little bit different than the work environment where someone might be very motivated to do well. But what she found was when she started with specific concrete feedback about what was good about their drawing of their bears is that people thought that her criticisms were more insightful, so they felt like, oh, she has something. That's a really good point. Whereas when she started with a negative and ended on a positive, they'd be like, well, what does she know? <laughs> I mean, maybe she can't draw bears either, right? They felt defensive. They went on the attack, right? Around like, this is a hard task. Give me a little credit here. Anyway, there were all these different ways that their defenses came up. Yeah. And those defenses didn't come up when she started with. So what I really like is that, you know, you first of all captured the outline of the bear, but then there were a lot of details in the face, you know, but I'm concerned because we can't really tell if that's a tail or if it's a leg, you know, whatever it might be, right? But I think it's really helpful to realize that people are going to think your criticisms are more insightful if you start with something really detailed that helps them feel seen.
0: So creating psychological safety up front by being specific in the positive allows for a more open-minded reception to the corrections.
1: Yes. I think that that's crucial because what psychological safety means is that you have the belief that the other person isn't going to punish you or humiliate you for being wrong, for asking questions, all of which are things you would not want people to do, but they are things that often happen in feedback conversations, right? You're pointing out someone's mistake. You want them to ask questions. I mean, psychological safety is so woven into a good feedback conversation. If they're not feeling psychologically safe, they can't hear you. You know, they can't hear the rest of what you have to say. I have a classic, experience. um, If it's okay for me to share a story. So early in my career, I had just finished my first year in a new job. I approached my boss and said, could we have a conversation about how this year went? Because it was a new career for me. I'd really made a career jump. And she said, of course, why don't we do this over lunch? That would be so fun. And I was like, okay, great lunch, even better. Okay. So we, we get a date on our calendar to go to a nice restaurant. We have this lovely lunch, but the whole time, Massimo, we never talk about my performance for the first year. We talk about our relationships. I'm engaged to get married. We talked about her pets and her kids. I mean, we just had this lovely bonding conversation, but we never once talked about my work. So we get to the end of the lunch and I'm thinking, okay, we've got a 15 minute walk back to the office. I'm going to ask her about my work on the walk. She said, would you mind if we duck into the restroom before we head back? And I was like, sure. While we're in our stalls, I'm not kidding. She launches into my feedback about how the first year went. She said, so Therese, all right. So here's what I love about your work. And I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) This is real. Reality is stranger than fiction oh, it was. I'm like, we are in a public restroom. I don't know who could walk in. I don't know what you're going to say. I can't, you know, I'm in a a bathroom stall. I can't even write this down. I want to take notes about what to do differently. And, you know, there were so many levels on which this was an awful situation and I did not feel psychologically safe at all. And I think she meant well, I think she was just so busy that she kind of forgot we were going to talk about this. And to her, she was only going to say positive things. And I didn't know that. So for her, it was fine to do this in a bathroom stall because she was just going to rattle off all that she loved about my work. But I didn't know where she was going. Right. (laughs) So I don't even remember any of the positive things that she said, except that they were positive because I was so panicked about the way we were doing this. And it also, to me, underlines an important lesson as the feedback recipient, we feel pretty powerless. I think at this stage in my career, if that happened with a manager, I would be like Jacqueline, can we just wait five minutes? <laughs> I'd be like, not now. I, I still wanna hear this, but could we wait five minutes? But I was early enough in my career that I felt like if this is how she's gonna give me feedback, I just have to take it this way. And so as managers, we really need to think about, is this a psychologically safe? I'm not saying that most managers give feedback in bathroom stalls, certainly they don't, right? But- We hope. But, we hope, we hope. But it just underlines the different ways that as a manager, when we're rushed, we might not be thinking about how this feedback could be psychologically unsafe for the other person. We think it's fine to say something in a meeting. There's only three of us in the meeting, like, you know, and we're all friends. We're close here. It should be fine for me to say this, but you're giving someone criticism and they're like, wait a second, Michelle's in the room. What are you doing? Wait, let's talk about this one-on-one. I feel really exposed here, right? There are so many ways in which we need to think about the psychological safety for the other person so that they don't feel humiliated or punished.
0: Right. The value of set and setting and, and the context in which the feedback is being provided is so important. And I find that when it comes to positive feedback, leaders and managers spend a lot less time thinking about how they want to deliver it. And at times they can agonize about how they want to deliver, you know, the corrective feedback Yes, um, when yeah. both are equally important and should take the same amount of consideration.
1: The praise and the acknowledgement is more important than people realize. Gallup has, has research that shows that if an employee hasn't received some piece of recognition about work they're doing well in the past seven days, so basically, if you haven't heard any praise in the past week, you're two times as likely to plan to quit within the next year. So on the one hand, it's you know, you've know you got to ask about the causal relationship. Is it that the bad employees were going to leave anyhow, and that's why they're not getting praise? I'm sure that's part of what we're seeing there, but what I often hear from managers is that they don't think they need to praise their superstars, right? They're just like, he's a rock star. He knows he does great work, right? I hear this so often. They're like, he gets paid well. He's put on the top projects. Why do I need to also point out he's the best on the team and he knows it. Why do I need to say he's doing great work? He's the person you don't want to lose. That's why yeah. you need to say he's doing great work.
0: <laughs> and and Therese, what I think is interesting is that when a manager sees that top performing employee getting praise from others, yes. that there may be a hesitance to give them more praise,
1: oh. recognizing what's well,
0: covered. And what they don't realize is that the most important praise is that from their manager.
1: That's such a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, if you perceive that, they're getting all the cookies they need from other people. You don't feel like you also need to heap on your own cookie, but like they need to know that you see the important work that they're doing, right? Because you're the person who evaluates them. You set their bonuses. You set whether or not they get the stretch assignments or not. There's so many ways in which they want to hear that praise from you, not just from Joe across the hall. Yeah. Very good point.
0: So I want to ask you about two other things. One is a personal example of me Uh, receiving feedback from a manager, and I I would love your perspective on it. Sure. Not a high degree of trust with the manager, kind of a contentious relationship. At the time, I was running global leadership development for a a fast-growing organization and doing a lot of coaching and facilitation. And as a part of that, I suppose one of the perks is I did get a lot of praise and feedback from participants and people that I was coaching because I was doing meaningful, transformative work. They were the ones doing the work, but they were attributing the success in that to me because I was the facilitator, the one guiding them through that experience. And at times I would get positive feedback from the manager, but it always felt a bit forced. Now Mm. it could be me reading into things, but what I observed is a hesitance in their voice. And I could always tell whether a conversation was just going to be a positive feedback conversation or if the boot was going to drop, so to speak. just by their tone and body language before we even got to that part of the conversation. And I found myself being acutely aware and not being open to even hearing the positive feedback because I was anticipating what was coming next. Mm -hmm. And let's just assume that I'm not alone in an experience like this. What advice do you have for me or for others that about how I could have showed up differently about how I could have managed that differently as the recipient.
1: Great question. What I'm loving in that story is the level of awareness that you had that you were noticing, okay, my body's starting to respond and getting anxious. It's because, you know, I can't pinpoint what it is about their body language, but I can tell the bad news is coming. The other shoe is about to drop. And I just love that you had that awareness. I don't know that it helped you in this situation, but (laughs) it's, you know, it's wonderful. It's wonderful that you had it because I think all too often, that might be percolating below the surface for someone. And all they know is they're getting anxious and they don't know why, right? So I love, I love that you are able to parse that. There's great work by Francesco Gino. She's also at Harvard Business School. And one of the things that she finds, this is recent research that she's currently doing and again, isn't published yet. One of the things that she's finding is that what can really make a difference when you're getting feedback that you're anxious about is to ask yourself the question, what can I learn from this? Now, it's such a simple thing. I'm I'm not saying that it's something that people have never thought of, but she's finding that if people can ask themselves that question, what can I learn from this? What can I learn from this? What can I learn from this? If they're thinking about that as they get the feedback, they're much more likely to think that the feedback was helpful and that there was something in the feedback that was positive. than if they don't go in with that question, they're more likely to think that the feedback was all negative. They're more likely to think there was nothing helpful in it. So simply asking that question and going in with, you know, Carol Dweck likes to say, a growth mindset, going in with what can I learn from this? Um, Like I said, it's not something you've never thought of, but you might not be thinking of it going into the conversation. So if you have that triggered moment of like, uh uh-oh, what's about to be said to say, okay, what can I learn from this? All right, I'm hungry for this. And I'm not saying that everything that that manager would have said to you, Massimo, was golden and brilliant, right? But the point being that You're trying to now filter what's the part that I can use versus what's the part that I can't use, because that's usually the case in feedback. There's usually something you can use and something you want to discard, but trying to set yourself up to find the thing that you can use gives you a chance to be more curious, right? So your manager says something, you're like, okay, I might be able to do that, but here's the problem I'm going to run into if I try that. So help me think through what would that actually look like? Anyway, I'm just saying, what can I learn from this? I think that's language that's helpful.
0: It's brilliant as almost a mantra going into the conversation, because you're right, even if you don't agree with the feedback that's being given, or it's given in, in not the best light, you can still learn how your manager perceives you. So there's always value in it, if you can be open-minded to what I can learn, as opposed to what are they going to say that I, that's wrong about me, or what don't they like about me, or you know other stories that people might tell themselves. I think that's, that's brilliant and a very a simple thing that we could all practice more of. So your book is about let's talk, but it's about creating feedback as a superpower. What's the model for that? How can people go about turning this into a superpower?
1: So I call it a superpower because it's one of the skills that as a manager, when you get better at feedback, the people around you improve. There's so many skills that you can gain as a manager. You get better at negotiation. That might be good for the bottom line for the company, but it doesn't necessarily make everyone on your team better. Whereas with feedback, when you level up, the people around you level up. Because you're doing a better job letting them know how to improve. So I think of it as a superpower in that way. It's it's a force multiplier on your team. But it's not a simple three-step process. I've had people say, you know, can't you just boil it down to five steps? Unfortunately, it's not that easy. At least I don't think it's that reductive. But the basic idea is to, you you know, lead with listening, you know, lead with curiosity around finding out what the other person's perspective is. What were they hoping for? What did they try How did they see it? To start with listening is a big part. And not only does that put the feedback recipient in a place where they're more comfortable, where they feel that they have more psychological safety, but what it also does is it signals to that person there's great research on listening. And what researchers are finding nationally and internationally is that when someone perceives they have a good listener, they get less defensive. There have been fabulous research studies where people are basically talking about their politics and they're talking about their political position to someone who's either a good listener or a bad listener, and they train the people to be good and bad listeners, right? And what they find is that when someone's talking about politics to a bad listener, they get really one-sided, they get really entrenched, and they're not willing to think about the other view at all. Whereas when people have a good listener, they start to point out the flaws in their own political party's thinking. This is really helpful for managers to know, if you want someone to reduce their defenses when you're having a critical conversation with them, if you're a good listener, they're much more likely to be calm and see the pros and cons of what they did. If you show that you're a good listener first, because you want that kind of nuance. You want that person to be willing to talk about, okay, so this wasn't perfect, but I guess I could try this differently. Yeah. And you're, you're more likely to get that if you're a good listener.
0: Therese, what are the top three things people can do to be good listeners?
1: So one, try to take the other person's perspective, and that's going to help you be a good listener. Two, a thing I love to ask myself in the middle of a conversation is what's most important to this person. I don't ask it out loud. I just ask it internally. And if I can't answer that question, I'm not listening hard enough. right? And then a third tip is simply set aside distractions, right? And that might even just mean turning your phone over so that you can't see it. Um, There's great research showing that even seeing your phone is enough to reduce your listening capacity. So if you can even like put your, phone in your pocket, right? So you can't see it. Just that visual distraction of your phone is enough to reduce your ability to listen well. So those would be probably my three tips, perspective taking, you know, put away distractions and ask yourself the question, what's most important to this person?
0: I love that question. And yes, if you don't know the answer, you're not listening enough. Therese, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on the new book. For those of you that want to buy it, it's called Let's Talk. And Therese has many other books out there that are about women in leadership and, you know, the context of of what really makes powerful teams. Thank you for the research that you're doing in the world. And it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast.
1: It's a real pleasure. Thanks so much, Massimo.
0: Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Leadership Mind. Remember, the mind is the connection between our being and doing, our intent and our actions. Make sure to visit our website, mossimobacchus.com. Where you can like and subscribe to the show on Spotify, Anchor FM, and Apple, so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found the episode valuable, please rate the podcast on your preferred platform or share it with your community. Until next week, remember to lead with compassion, curiosity, and gratitude. Great leadership is a gift.